If you have a monetary technology that cannot be censored, what that allows is for humanitarians to go into dictatorships and like provide aid and maybe even help rebels who are fighting against that autocracy. Welcome back to Beyond the Price, a podcast from CoinPost that goes beyond the flashing numbers to explore how Bitcoin fits into the global economy and how real people and real companies are actually using it, especially in Asia. I'm so excited to bring you this episode because my guest is Jason Mayer, a high school math teacher who wrote a book called A Progressive's Case for Bitcoin. And this is one of my favorite books of this year. I finished it and immediately lent it out because people need to read this. I think that for people who are already skeptical of government or consider themselves small government conservatives or even libertarians, then the value of a non-governmental money is relatively easy to grasp. But if you're someone who sees government as playing a key role in addressing some of the biggest global issues of our time, it can be easy to see a non-governmental money as undermining this or potentially making things worse. And for a while, there weren't many voices addressing this, but now we're seeing a new cohort showing how Bitcoin not only empowers the individual, but also communities. How it doesn't eliminate government, it improves it by making it more accountable, more objective, more sustainable, more peaceful. I know that's a bold claim, but Jason walks through it in his book very methodically, very accessibly. And what he really does well is explaining just enough of the technical aspects to understand the social topics of each chapter rather than getting bogged down in dry explanations. There's so much more I wanted to cover in this conversation, but I hope it entices you to read the book because it's really thought-provoking and honestly optimistic, which is something we need right now. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and let me know what you think. I'm here with Jason Mayer. Jason, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Bradley. Uh, Excited to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. So you wrote this book, A Progressive's Case for Bitcoin, and I I love this book so much. It's I was reading it, and it felt like the book I had been waiting for. I'm sure a lot of people feel this way. Um, I, I don't really share books with friends but this one i i read it and immediately it's just like man i want to i want to lend this book to uh to everyone i know i uh, i finished reading it i i immediately gave it to my girlfriend she read it uh i got it back for uh this interview basically but i already have like three people that i that i really want to lend it to um is that that's got to be a pretty common reaction yeah, I mean, um, I've heard over and over again, which it really does, it, it is so heartwarming that people are excited to, to lend the book out. And when they read it, um, you know, they're learning about Bitcoin and they have somebody in mind that they want to share the book with. And, um, you know, like you said, uh, so many people have reached out to me and say, this is the book that I was waiting for. I was hoping somebody would write a book like this. Um, and it just really was when I was learning about Bitcoin, this is the book that I wish that I had. And I decided since it didn't exist already that I would, um, you know, lock myself away and write it. Um, and so really, as I was writing the book, the intention was was really for uh, people who were already into Bitcoin uh, to to buy the book or to, to lend it out for people that they cared about. Um, and say, all right, well, I know that maybe you and I don't agree on everything, on everything, but I really care about you. I want you to learn about Bitcoin, and here's a, here's a different kind of book for you to, to look at. And um, every, all the time, every week, multiple people are reaching out to me and say, like, I gave the book, I gave your book to my mom, I gave your book to my sister, you know, whatever it is, neighbors, colleagues, uh, coworkers. Um, and so that 
like I said, it warms my heart because that's kind of was the intention in my brain as I was writing it, like, oh, this would be good to hand to other people. Um, so for you to say that is a huge compliment because it means that the book is doing what it's supposed to. And um, I feel really lucky about that. Yeah, yeah, I think it definitely is. So it came out in uh, April of this year. Um, so yeah. it's been a, a little time now. How have your conversations with people changed um from before the book to to after the book um do you mean like uh the people that are in my life or bitcoiners or <laughs> i guess the answer is different depending on who yeah uh, who i'm talking to um i can kind of imagine how the conversations with bitcoiners could go but i'm curious about your your conversations with uh, non-bitcoiners yeah, um, I think that what the book has done is established me as sort of uh, the Bitcoin person among all of my friends and family members who aren't yet into Bitcoin, right? So yeah. um, I kind of knew that was going to happen. And so I'm the go-to person with questions. And I heard this news article. I heard Bitcoin is, you know, like, you know, went bankrupt. Oh, no, that's something else. So, you know, I'm trying to field those kinds of questions um, and, you know, like I said, just really in the position for people that, you know, are in my social circle to reach out. And I've gotten tons of people to, to sort of engage me in conversations just because they know about the book. You know, I'm a, uh, 20-year uh, high school math teacher, and my students know that I wrote a book. So my students all during last year into the spring were asking me about Bitcoin and, and about the book. Um, but it's been... It, I mean, such a phenomenal experience for me to have the book out there and to be able to talk about it in so many different ways with so many different people. Um, and so, you know, like my my kids are thrilled when, you know, oh, I can't believe you get to go you know, to such and such a place or whatever. And, and my parents are excited and all of my coworkers. So it's um, it's not been universal. Some people are still sort of smugly dismissive about Bitcoin. Uh, but uh, for the most part, I have a lot of really supportive and, and caring people in my life. And so it's just been interesting to, to be able to to show them what I've been working on and so what I'm so excited about, um, because you don't get through a book if you're not passionate about what you're writing about. It's too much work. Um, so it's, it's clear to them that, you know, that's the... I, I put a lot of work into this and I care about it and I'm, I'm excited to talk to them about it. So it's been really interesting the way that's opened up the conversation with people I know. Yeah, I definitely want to ask about uh, your views on the next generation because you are a teacher, you, you have a lot of exposure to, uh, to kids. Um, and also, like you say, finishing a book is, uh, is quite an endeavor. So I, yeah, I have, I have questions about that too, but maybe first, um, thinking about the title, a, a progressive's case for Bitcoin, and I know you were very intentional with that title, rather than mm -hmm. calling it, for example, the progressive case for Bitcoin. You made it a progressive, yeah. as in just um, your your case. Um, but right. it sounds like progressive is the the label that you would maybe identify with most strongly. Is that fair to say? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't, a, a lot of people sort of get hung up about it, especially in the Bitcoin space. Well, what do you mean about progressive or whatever? Like, I'm an American guy, I vote for Democrats, usually, um, because I agree with them more than Republicans. Um, but, you know, I, I consider myself a progressive left of center liberal person on, on pretty much all issues. Um, and so that's the, that's the label I stuck with just because it is 
like I said, it, it is a book that I wanted to sort of read. And I know that there's a lot of things, a lot of properties of Bitcoin that can make the world a better place, particularly when you view those issues through a, a progressive lens. So there's no reason not to have the argument or the conversation out there that, you know, Bitcoin, like more sound money, more uh, like transparency in our financial system, all of the things that Bitcoin could possibly provide us is not necessarily a partisan issue. It doesn't need to feel like that when you look at the Bitcoin space either. So, um, you know, like the label is is one thing, but it's sort of like, well, you know, Bitcoin stands up for some pretty important ideals. And um, uh, and I think that it matches pretty well with what the way that I would like to see the world and, and the, the better version of the world that I hope for. Um, so yeah, that's the, the, that's how I would label it. Um, I don't know. I can also talk about, uh, like, you know, you mentioned the, the next generation. I don't know if you wanted to ask a specific question or you just hear me talk about my thoughts about what the next generation, uh, has in store for us. I don't know. Uh, I definitely want to hear your thoughts, but maybe before we, uh, come on to that, um, I, I think you're right that the the sort of Bitcoin space needed um, the perspective that you brought, because I remember uh, a few years ago, I would listen to a Bitcoin podcast or even read a book about Bitcoin, and it would be so good. And I would think, man, I want to send this to my friend. But then the say the podcast guest would would go into, say, some political uh, statements or support for one political candidate or another. And I would think like, oh, man, like I could still <laughs> send this and I could like just say it with caveats. But I know like just that statement, especially in our current uh, environment, it's going to be such a hard pill for my friend to swallow. And they're probably not going to get past that to to hear the the Bitcoin part. Yeah. And that's that's really the motivation behind the book. Right. It's not like um, I was sort of offended as a liberal person because these people in the Bitcoin space weren't saying the things that I liked or they're using words that offended me. It was not, like that's not the issue. The issue is that I know as an educator, you if you want somebody to like dive into a really complicated, difficult topic and you want them to invest themselves in learning about it, they have to be comfortable and, and feel welcomed in the space. And there was a lot of podcasts, a lot of books out there that were very good at giving you Bitcoin content, but also very good at giving you sort of the, the more far right, extreme sort of political positions. And, and that's fine. I'm not interested in changing anybody's mind who believes those things, but I know that it's going to be a turnoff for people who I want to learn about Bitcoin because they're just going to shut down. As much as we want to say that Bitcoin transcends sort of the current political labels, well, that's fine. But people are already currently in their political label, and they're not, you know, necessarily interested in in removing that label right away, right? So I think that the idea is let's bring Bitcoin to people with their language, meet them where they are, talk about the things that they care about, and there's plenty plenty of ways to do that. Um, and then if they want to look through the at the world through a different lens because they've gotten into Bitcoin and they want to sort of reconcile what their sort of previous views were with sort of how the vision of Bitcoin lines up with the future, that's fine. I think that we need all different kinds of voices to have that conversation and to be involved with it instead of just sort of the one angle, which is what I came into when I started to learn about Bitcoin. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad it's not just me, too. There's a lot of other people who are sort of broadening that conversation. And I think that's healthy for Bitcoin. Absolutely. Um, 
have you always um, been a progressive or I, I'm curious how your political views or the way you identify yourself has, has changed over the course of your life? Because I know for me, it's kind of like a pinball. That is a great, that's a great question. And even though that's a, like, it's in the title of my book, you're the first person to actually ask me this question. Okay. Um, I, I was not always, I did not always consider myself a progressive. I grew up in a very conservative household. So both of my parents were down the line Republicans, very conservative, um, at least politically on like, you know, social and economic issues, right? They, um, so that, that was the environment I grew up in. And then, uh, you know, you sort of take on your parents' view of the world because you're a child. And that's sort of what I, the, that was the water I swam in. Um, and then, uh, you know, I started broadening out my social circles a little bit in high school, reading a little bit different things, being exposed to different ideas that continued into college. Um, and by the time, you know, I was, I was an adult and voting uh, in real life and having grown up conversations, making grown up decisions in my life. Uh, I would say I was, I was a progressive or a liberal. I'm, I'm actually not like a registered Democrat. Um, mm. So like, if you think I'm not like, you know, I just vote for the person who agrees with me the most. Um, I don't like the two party system. So um, if there's only one candidate sort of left to center, like I'll, I'll vote for them in like the working families party instead of the Democrat party, you know, uh, just to sort of mix it up a little bit. But so I think that my political beliefs sort of shifted in early adulthood, late teenage years, as I sort of started moving away from my parents' household and questioning some of the things that I took as assumptions and meeting people from different backgrounds and different cultures, um, and just sort of grew into sort of like the positions that I have now, which are way more nuanced and subtle than like the politicians want to like give you credit for, right? Like everybody thinks you need to be on team blue or team red. And that means everything you need to agree with. But, you know, I, I, I think of it more as like, instead of just issues that you're supposed to check off, just what are your ideals? Like, do you feel like you, do you want to treat people fairly? Do you want to live a life where you're willing to sacrifice to make somebody else's day better? You know, like, do we want to protect people from, you know, uh, corporations or companies that are going to take advantage of them? Do we want to protect people from governments that are going to take advantage of them, right? These are all things that I, I'm wholly in, you know, supportive of. And um, I don't think any of that contradicts Bitcoin at all. So yeah, I think that's where it ties in. Very similar to my background. Um, I grew up, well, my parents are American. They're from Kansas, actually. Um, mm -hmm. I grew up in Japan. So I knew my parents were Republicans, um, conservative, but it wasn't like a something I encountered on the day to day because because we were in Japan. Um, then when I went to college, uh, first, yeah, like just kind of a like I assumed I would be I would vote Republican, but then I ended up going to a very left leaning university. Although I didn't I didn't realize it at the time. It was in the UK, mm -hmm. so. Um, I think the whole country is a little bit more uh, left-leaning <laughs> yeah. there, and uh, and even even there, the the university itself was kind of radical. At least the department I was in, um, mm -hmm. so swung way to that side and had very negative views on the Republican Party. Um, sure. But then uh, uh, got into Bitcoin, and that kind of brought me back towards the the center, I would say. Um, yeah. 
yeah so i think i think it is important for people to to uh change their minds a few times throughout their lives i, I think especially on twitter or maybe it's just the way people present themselves <laughs> but but uh it seems like the people who have the strongest or the most black and white views are the people who have never seriously changed their mind on anything yeah and and i think you know my my experience being in the Bitcoin space is is that I'm able to have conversations with people who are more conservative than my friends or you know acquaintances that I already like have in real life. Um, I'm, a, I'm able to have conversations with them. They're like that's not happening now. At least sort of that seems like everybody's so divided and polarized that you're not talking politics with people you don't disagree with, which in and of itself is sort of a problem. Mm. Um, and I think I feel like Bitcoin allows us to do that. And I've definitely been able to have really productive conversations with somebody who, because I'm a Bitcoiner and they're a Bitcoiner, we know we're not going to like take cheap shots just to like score points, right? We actually are interested in how we think about the world and we don't need, we don't have to agree. We don't have to see the world through the same lens. That's okay. And I do think that my background of like, you know, still to this day, like my parents are Republican and they vote conservative and like, you know, I have to talk to them all the time. Right. So like having people in your life that you don't agree with necessarily helps you sort of build those conversations up and have more meaningful, productive conversations. And, you know, if nothing else, like that's such a huge benefit, because I think we need to have that dialogue that's productive and respectful um, if we're going to solve some of the problems and make the world a better place. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely needed something that could bring us together, like some topic that transcends the boundaries. And for a while, I thought it might have to be an alien invasion that that might be the only <laughs> thing that would kind of bring people yeah. together. But uh, kind of seems like maybe Bitcoin could be that thing now. I'm hoped I'm, I'm hopeful that it is. So that, that remains my hope. Okay, let's get into the, the meat of the book. Um, mm-hmm. I know one of the first chapters is Bitcoin and the environment, um, because mm-hmm. it, it is such a common criticism, especially from people on the left or progressives. And I've, I've heard it mm-hmm. a lot myself. Um, and it is an amazing chapter, but I think I'm going to actually skip it just because, uh, um, mm-hmm. well, you've, you've dealt with it a lot elsewhere uh, in other podcasts, um, and the chapter itself is, is so well written. Um, also, we had on uh, Daniel Batten, actually, the first episode oh, yeah. of, of the podcast, uh, and he went into that. Um, and also it seems like the, the mainstream narrative is kind of maybe shifting on, uh, the environmental issues. We're, yeah, we're hoping we don't need to talk, uh, in depth about it, especially, um, you know, if, if we have an episode with Daniel Batten, then highly recommend watching that for anybody, but I'll, I'll just say the environmental issue seems so black and white and so easy for people who care about the environment and care about global warming and climate change. Um, and the only thing I'll just say is that it's it's not black and white. There are there are nuances to learn about like how energy works and to understand like it's not just as simple as saying, okay, we're just gonna do solar, right? There are drawbacks and inefficiencies built into renewable technologies and just because somebody's think you know something or somebody is using energy doesn't mean that it's a wasteful use of that energy. So um, I, I'm happy to talk more about it, but if we can skip it, I just want to say that if you're if you consider yourself an environmentalist or somebody who cares about the environment, uh, like dig a little bit deeper because there's more to the story than just use energy equals bad. Um, you need to actually understand 
how Bitcoin can help uh, renewable energy and help the environment. Um, and, and some of the same goals that, that I have and that you have, like maybe like, you know, Bitcoin is a solution for that. So don't just dismiss it out of hand. That's all I'll say. Yeah, we could easily have uh, separate hour hours long episodes on on each of the chapters. But uh, um, one one criticism that uh, we used to hear, and then I thought it had kind of disappeared, but now it's reappeared, is the is the Bitcoin uh, is only used for crime and terrorism uh, narrative. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember a few years ago, I I think it was the FBI director who was testifying to Congress, basically saying. Uh, we'd prefer criminals to use Bitcoin because it's much more right. trackable than than cash. So I I thought mm-hmm. that that might kind of um, put away that that uh, that criticism. But now with the uh, with the uh, Hamas uh, mm-hmm. incident and uh, Elizabeth Warren's crusade against crypto, it seems it's back. Is that something you're hearing a lot around you and and uh, like a criticism you often get? Um. It's not as common as the sort of the environmental critique. And I think right now, um, sophisticated, thoughtful people know that uh, if you're talking about a technology or a tool, like it can be used for good and for bad. Right. I think that, um, you know, people know that a hammer is a productive tool and it can be a murder weapon. Right. So it, it's it's a, not a very interesting conversation. Right. Like you say, OK, well, Bitcoin can be used for a crime. It's like, well, it's just cash. Right. And like cash is used for crime. So you have the normal retorts to say, well, all right, well. Bitcoin is not used for crime nearly as often as hundred dollar bills or whatever the the thing is, right? So, and and it's not the technology being bad; it is the humans choosing to use it to for good or for bad ends. So, I think there's a interesting conversation to be had there that's more than the surface level. What what I think is the the challenging, like the sticky wicket for some people, is to understand that like especially as Americans, and and I know that some of your audience isn't necessarily American, but a lot of the Americans that I speak to are very used to having a monetary technology and a global financial system that has good guys and bad guys, and the good guys can cut the bad guys off from the monetary system. Hmm. And, and people who are Americans, or you know, whether they're in power or just sort of reading the news, feel good about that because there's a bad guy out there. I can cut off the funding, and that's effective way of... Now, we can debate, is it if, or like sanctions effective? Do, does it cause human suffering that doesn't need to happen? And all of these conversations are more nuanced. But at least in the public perception, the idea is that like, oh, there's an on off switch to the US dollar. And I like that because we're the good guys. Um, and it's a lot harder to get your mind wrapped around the idea that Bitcoin is a neutral technology. Um, there are no good guys and bad guys, according to Bitcoin, even though there are in real life good guys and bad guys. And if you want to enforce something or you want to make the world a better place or protect people or stop somebody from doing something bad, um, the, it's no longer an option just to say, I'm going to cut you off from the SWIFT or from the US dollar or sanction you. There are other technologies out there and whether or not you like it, like that's the truth. Like Bitcoin can't be censored or stopped or siphoned off or you know, uh, just there's no on off switch for Bitcoin. So you just 
people in general, the world is going to have to get to used to the idea that like there, there are all types of people that use Bitcoin for good or for bad. And um, you're not going to stop it. But what you, what you can do is devote your energy towards things that are more effective and also go ahead and use Bitcoin for good things, because there's a lot of reasons why people cannot do good in the world because of the old legacy financial system and Bitcoin allows them to do good. So yeah, there's, it's a complicated conversation. I think that, that, it's not just about, well, it's used for crime or it's criminals use it. It's sort of, well, I'm used to this system where we can just stop bad guys from using money. And that's no longer an option. And it's not just because you don't like Bitcoin, or you don't like that doesn't mean Bitcoin's going to go away either. So you need to be more thoughtful about it. I'm so glad you brought that up because this was one of my big takeaways from the book. Um, that, uh, we're we're not used to decentralized technology or i should say maybe unstoppable technology permissionless technology we we expect at the end of the day someone to be in control someone can um censor someone's financial transactions or someone can uh boot uh someone off of the the uh the discord server or um, right. suspend the Twitter account. Um, we're used to that. And I think we've generally, those have generally been good environments for many of us. So we don't see the problem with them, but reading your book, I started to get this idea that, that actually, um, even though there are some frictions like, uh, bad people using, uh, using the, the, the new money or, um, people sending messages or data that we wouldn't want to be sent, even though there is that on the whole uh, permissionless technologies are better for the little guy, better for the disempowered than mm -hmm. for those in power. Um, would you agree with that? And, and if so, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. And I, and I think that it's just a, a matter of how, how you look at the world, right? I, I think that if you have, um, a monetary technology that cannot be censored or cannot be stopped, um, then what that allows is for humanitarians all around the world to go into countries that are run by uh, autocracies or dictatorships and like provide aid and funding and, and maybe even like, uh, like help uh, rebels who are fighting against that autocracy. So um, feed people who are, you know, displaced by war, like this is happening currently as we're talking, right? So I think that there are good things that can happen with the use of, of a monetary technology that cannot be stopped at a border. It can't be cut off by a bank. It can't be censored by a government. It just, it, it just is. It's, it's the best form of money that we've ever had, which means that, you know, one of the properties is that you can use it and like you can't, no, nobody's in charge of stopping it. And it's a completely new paradigm for people to get their heads wrapped around because there's always a customer service hotline to call or there's always somebody in charge of you know making something illegal if we don't like it right like we can see all of the like just the the old way of thinking creeping into the criticisms and it just you're 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 criticizing this new thing with an old playbook and it just doesn't make any sense so we just have to start thinking about it in an updated way and realize that whether we like it or not like there are people in the world who are going to use Bitcoin for both good and bad things. And so if you want the world to be a better place, start using Bitcoin for and do good things with it. Um, and 
be creative about the ways that we want to stop uh, terrorists or bad people from from doing what they're doing because the monetary levers that we are used to won't work anymore. Um, and that's just, you know, that's just the new reality. One of the challenges with explaining Bitcoin is that uh, often the criticisms can be expressed in a soundbite and then the rebuttal mm-hmm. takes hours and hours of explanation and even like learning about new industries, new sectors from scratch, whether it's energy or finance, um, mm-hmm. some of the yeah problems unique to these uh, um, authoritarian countries that you mentioned. Um, how do you how do you start with people? I guess it depends on the on the person. But what's yeah. uh, do you have like a go to explanation that you use? It, it's it's interesting, right? Depending on the critique, I think this is a is a very um, uh, salient point. Is, is the critique comes out in a soundbite. The response, like you said, you know, the Bitcoin is bad for the environment is literally uh, one sentence and it is enough to turn a bunch of people off without doing any further thinking. People don't even need to verify that that's true, even by their own definition, right? They just, if they hear it, then they can just shut off and they, and they actually feel good about themselves because they're going to just forget this thing that is bad for the environment. Uh, and the same, you know, with the other criticisms. And because it takes long to explain, you know, the, the answer to that, or it requires you to think about multiple different things that are all interconnected, like the global financial system, like U.S. dollar hegemony, like the U.S. military, you know, like how are all of these things intertwined? And, and like the answer isn't so easy, right? Like the dollar isn't good for the environment either. Right? So, but what I like to do is just encourage people to keep learning, right? Because I think that it is, if you have a little, if you get bit by the Bitcoin bug, then you're going to want to learn more. And I think that just as a teacher, the solution for me is always to sort of just keep learning, right? So I say uh, this anecdote at the in the end of the book about this colleague of mine who's like, oh, like, do you think I should buy Bitcoin? And I said, well, you know, nobody who studied Bitcoin for a hundred hours, like, thinks it's a bad idea. You should probably, you know, uh, think about that. And she goes, oh, do you saying I should buy Bitcoin? I said, no, you, I think you should study Bitcoin for a hundred hours. So I think that yeah. my advice for anybody who's just starting and sees some potential or promise, but like has questions, by all means, be skeptical, ask really hard questions, like bring up issues that you're thinking about, but keep learning because uh, there's a lot of resources out there. There's a lot of different kinds of ways to learn about Bitcoin. And if you devote the time and energy to take it seriously, like you will thank yourself, your future you will thank you. Um, And it's just like the solutions, the answers aren't easy. And um, it takes a lot of resolve to get past the easy answers and to realize, oh, if somebody can answer that question really easily, then it's probably not the the right answer or not the most useful answer. So why don't I go look for the difficult, complicated, intricate answers? Um, and Bitcoin has those, you know, tons of those. So uh, keep learning. Um, and then obviously, if I'm one-on-one with somebody, I can address the specific issue that they're having or the question or the concern or the skepticism. Um, but, um, you know, that, that takes me being one-on-one with another person who wants to learn. So I think that in general, the advice is to keep learning. Um, and there's no shortage of ways to do that. One, uh, 
part of the book that really stuck out to me. And interestingly, it was something that my girlfriend mentioned as well that was a surprise to her. And uh, in fact, when the way you write it in the book is that it was kind of a surprise to you, even though maybe obvious in hindsight, is this idea that the government debt will never be repaid. <laughs> kind of yeah. <laughs> counter in, counterintuitive idea and not not something that's not the way that politicians talk about it um, right and yet right. it is like it makes so much sense when you when you actually think about it um so maybe as a as a jumping off point for for trying to get into even though it's mm-hmm. a massive topic the the way that our global monetary system is failing us could you could you talk about mm-hmm. that realization and, and what that means yeah i think that um you know my um for a very long time, my view of the debt, it feels almost like, you know, Santa Claus, like, oh, my God, how did I not see this? Uh, you know, how did I not see the truth? But like politicians will talk about our government debt as if um, they're working to pay it off or they're better than the other guy about reducing the deficit. And um, and I think that you can kind of go through your life in this sort of days thinking, yeah, the government has lots of debt and they're going to have to pay it off. But I don't know, somebody will vote somebody in and it will happen or whatever. But um, it, it, once you actually drill down and realize like um, the numbers make it impossible and it, it's literally impossible for the government to pay off the debt. And so what we need are two things. They need to um, finance the debt with more debt. So every time a you know savings bonds come due or something like a treasury bill comes due, they're just issuing a new one to pay off the old one. Um, and the other thing they need is inflation, because if you have inflation, then the if you're a debtor, then the amount that you're paying back, the purchasing power is less than what you borrowed. So the government as a very huge debtor, it, like oh, over 31 or I forget what the exact number is, but well over 31 trillion dollars of debt, um, the the intention is not to pay it off. It's mathematically impossible for them to pay it off. Um, and in fact, in all likelihood, that debt will just continue to grow because they're paying it off with more debt. Interest rates are going up, which means that the amount of, you know, just to service the loans and the debt that they already have will go up. Um, and what you have is a, a whole financial monetary system based on uh, debt, uh, uh, people owing other people money. Um, and the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is that it's not easy to, to create these sort of complicated financial instruments because you need you actually need the bitcoin to do something you can't just pretend you have it you can't just short like you short a stock and you pretend that you have it so you can sell it like you can't sell bitcoin you don't have and so and if you owe somebody bitcoin um you need to pay them back in bitcoin um and you can't print more bitcoin right and so the government is constantly you know in a position they have um access to the money printer they can print more dollars which debases uh, the monetary supply makes your purchasing power of the dollars you have less. Um, that is a unique position that the United States government has for the world reserve currency. And the entire system is based on their ability to do that and to essentially um, finance unlimited debt. Like they, they can just issue more and more debt. Now, a, a rational person has to look at that system and say, well, that's not sustainable forever, right? The dollar is not backed by anything real and tangible, except for the the debt that the United States government has taken on and the willingness of the government to like protect, you know, 
their monetary technology. So, um, it, you know, we can go into it further, but basically the idea is that the, the system is not getting better. It's not going to improve itself. It's not going to correct for itself. And in fact, the farther we go along and the more debt that's added into the system, both private and public, um, it's just making the house of cards taller. And so when the when it finally falls, and, and there are examples throughout history of, of um, fiat uh, economic systems that are based, you know, getting off the gold standard or getting away from sound money, like Throughout history, tons of examples of economies, countries, empires collapsing, um, and it's it, it feels scary and unfortunate. But like, it's actually not as scary when you look at the world through a Bitcoin lens because you can kind of see what the solution is and you can work towards it. But um, you know, not knowing when the crash is going to come, when is the house of cards going to fall, when is the debt going to sort of get beyond escape velocity and it's just going to spiral out of control and you get things like hyperinflation, um, like that will happen at some point. Um, and my hope is to get as many people into Bitcoin or understanding that system as possible before it does. Um, and, you know, it, it all it maybe it didn't start with, but like the idea that the U.S. government cannot pay down its debt is a pretty in, integral part of that um, of that journey for me. And it's interesting that you brought it up because I think it, it it's a surprise, but also it's not a surprising surprise, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, just like you say, um, even though it, this feels I mean, it's not something we often think about and then when we do think about it 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 feels um potentially catastrophic and yet it's a cycle that's repeated throughout history where you have a government issued money they can't resist the the urge to uh to print more of it or to debase it to lower the whether it's the amount of gold in the coins themselves or just in the banking system the amount of gold backing the currency uh, debases further and further eventually leads to hyperinflation. Um, mm. Even even so, well, I think people don't know about or think about that cycle. And I'm sure it still feels like unfathomable that that the US would would enter that. But mm -hmm. do you think do you think that's becoming more of a uh, more talked about these days? Or does, it, is it it's not at all? It, it, that's a great question, and I don't know that I can answer it because I'm I'm fully into like the Bitcoin world, right? So it feels like it feels like everyone's talking about the idea that like, well, the government debt is not sustainable, and it's it's all because of the money printer and all this, right? Well, this is these are pretty common talking points among Bitcoiners, but the truth, like, you don't need to have like a, a lot of those like ideas or would be considered pretty extreme or, or unthinkable to like a normal person. And then you just get down to basics, right? Like you, you can see that we know already that the federal reserve has a 2% target uh, for inflation, right? That, that takes away purchasing power for people who are saving and earning money. It hurts like vulnerable, low income people, low net worth people more than it hurts, you know, more wealthy people for lots of different reasons. But like, this is not like just having that target is, is not like necessarily fair just for like the, the entirety of the economic spectrum. Um, and on top of that, you have this debt that is just out there. It's not going anywhere. And, and it's, 
it's it's forcing the hand of the Federal Reserve and the politicians to say, yeah, we need to keep debasing. And eventually we're going to, like I said, we're going to hit escape velocity and that debt is going to skyrocket and the printing is going to skyrocket. The inflation is going to go up. I don't know if people are talking about it outside of the Bitcoin circle. So I think that um, that is that is one of the things that I hope people learn about the legacy financial system and maybe learn a little bit more than they already know. If they dive into Bitcoin, you're kind of sort of forced to think about things like that. And normally people don't think about it at all. I don't have uh, much of an economic uh, background myself. Uh, most of what I've learned is, is since getting into Bitcoin. Um, but I like to think maybe one thing I am good at is identifying uh, whether someone is like a minority opinion or not, um, just by the way they present arguments, I think there are some telltale signs. Um, and I know that with Bitcoiners, a lot of their the economic theories that they espouse are the minority right now. Uh, mm -hmm. So I remember a few years ago during the pandemic, kind of like hearing a lot of Bitcoiners saying, oh, this, these stimulus checks, they're going to lead to inflation all this mm -hmm. money printing to uh, to save the economy from the effects of the pandemic is going to lead to inflation. And I was kind of skeptical because I knew that that Bitcoiners are not the, the mainstream <laughs> economic opinion. Yeah. But then it, it right. did it did happen. And and so many economists and uh, analysts were saying uh, inflation is is uh, well, first, we're not going to have inflation. Uh, right. Money printing doesn't lead to inflation. Um, and then inflation came and they said, well, it's going to be transient, uh, which yeah. I mean, maybe maybe the people saying transient didn't have had something else in mind. But a lot of people took that to mean oh, it's going to be like a few months. And, and it wasn't. Mm -hmm. It was it was much longer than that. Um, and in fact, we're still in a high inflation right. environment. So, yep. I'm uh, I, I'm I definitely give more credence to to Bitcoin uh, <laughs> analysis now or Bitcoiners giving economic opinions, um, even though they're still not the mainstream, it seems like they have a, a pretty good batting average. Yeah. And I, and I agree with that point. I think that um, if you just stick around long enough and you pay attention and like, that's the beauty of, of the way that we can educate ourselves now is that you can start paying attention to the people who are thoughtful, who tend to be correct. Um, not to say that you, you're not allowed to make mistakes, right? But if people, um, you know, there's a lot of Bitcoiners out there who have a lot of really strong opinions and they speak in absolutes and they know everything and this is definitely going to happen and all of that. And I'm not, that's not my style. Um, but certainly to your point, like, yes, like the the stimulus checks ended up with, you know, we ended up with inflation and, and all sorts of very fancy economists from all sorts of universities around the country are going to tell you all reasons why the Bitcoiners were wrong, but it actually happened that way. Bitcoiners have been right uh, for the last decade and a half about, you know, the price of Bitcoin going up and, you know, in the long term when you zoom out and there's all sorts of things that you can pick from. But I would just say, you know, there's a lot of people who have really strong opinions and just seek out the ones that resonate with you and people who have a track record and who aren't so absolute in their thinking. Because um, if for no other reason, like we're saying, like it's important to have conversations with all kinds of people, even people that you disagree with. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you said, the batting average for Bitcoiners, like predicting these things is 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 pretty good. 
And it, it's worth looking into like, why are Bitcoiners so smart about like, oh, inflation, <laughs> like this is inflation or this is what's going to happen. Um, there's some lessons to be learned for sure. Speaking of inflation, uh, another thing that's kind of um, just uh, talked about as as obvious in in uh, Bitcoin circles is that inflation is a bad thing, that it uh, mm-hmm. degrades our purchasing power. Um, I was shocked to to find a, a Reddit thread. Someone was it was one of those uh, explain like I'm five um, mm-hmm. questions where someone was saying why I can't remember whether it was uh, why is inflation bad or or why is inflation good, but almost unanimously, the replies were talking about how inflation helps uh, poor people because poor people tend to be in debt and inflation reduces debt. So, I mean, that was kind of mind-blowing to me that that the, I don't know if that's the mainstream discourse, but it's so far from, from what we tend to hear um, do you think that's a common view and, uh, how would you push back against that? I think it's a common view because that's probably the view I had before I got into Bitcoin. Right. Um, but I, th- I think it's, 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 there's a couple of things, uh, to note about that. One is that, you know, people who are affluent and wealthy have access to resources that are scarce. Like they actually invest in, um, and hard assets, things like real estate companies, expensive cars, you know, fancy bottles of wine, right? Like things that hold their purchasing value. Uh, that's not, you know, pieces of art. Like these are not available to people who are on the low end of the economic spectrum, right? So I think that um, the the other thing is that people who are wealthy tend to carry a lot of debt too, but that's it's a lot different kind of debt, right? Like people who have a lot of resources will strategically take on debt in times and places that make sense for them, right? Like borrow money when you can, not when you have to. And so you end up with all sorts of, um, you know, incentives for uh, people who are affluent, well-connected, have lots of resources to have financial instruments and structures that benefit them and they can hedge their bets and they can think ahead on stuff like this. And if you're living paycheck to paycheck, there's just no way for you to do that. And so when the price of your groceries goes up, um, you know, 10% 10% a year. And that's an underestimate. Like I think most people can feel it more acutely than that. Um, and your paycheck doesn't go up and you don't have the ability to save in hard assets like real estate and, you know, gold or Bitcoin or things like that. Like you just don't have the option to preserve your purchasing power, nor do you have the expertise necessarily or the experience to like hedge against an inflationary environment or deflationary environment. You just have to kind of take things as they come. So you can say that like the, the compounding effect of inflation, the fact that we, you know, even in an ideal situation, we have 2% per year, that hits the necessities more than it, than it hits sort of, you know, other things. So you're talking about somebody year after year, that 2% compounds and it affects them because we're talking about transportation, gasoline to get to work, you know, groceries, a gallon of milk, all of those things. That's a lot different than worrying about the inflation of like, you know, uh, you know, a, a two week vacation in Bali or something like that, right? Like you're talking about people's life and death situation. Can they put food on the table? So I'd say that um, it, it is very surface level to say, oh, well, poor people have debt, so inflation is good. Well, they still need to feed themselves. And it's not, they're not holding debt that they're choosing to hold because it's strategic. They're holding debt because they can't afford 
of the necessities of life. So I'd say it's, um, it's much more nuanced. And I think that, um, you know, I talk about this in the book too, about how inflation actually hurts poor people. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with a short term 2% inflation, as long as it balances out, right? Like in the 1800s, the the purchasing power of a dollar in the year 1800 and the year 1899 was pretty much the same, right? Like you had ups and downs though, right? And then all of a sudden we go, we get off the gold standard, the Federal Reserve comes around in the early uh, 1900s. And now inflation is so baked into our everyday understanding. Like, yeah, it makes sense. Like grandma's going to talk about how much a candy bar costs and it's going to sound really weird and I'm going to think it's stupid. And then when I'm a grandfather, I'm going to do the same exact thing. It's just part of our life. And it doesn't have to be like there's functioning monetary systems that don't have like runaway inflation, exponential growth in that way, that we're still very productive and very like more equitable, all of those things. So, um, you know, just open your eyes to a different possibility because it's out there. It was a huge unlock for me when I realized, okay, inflation is good for people with huge amounts of debt. Um, Who is the biggest (laughs) debtor? It's not the poor people it's it's the u.s government yeah yep um and 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 we can see why it's important for inflation to be you know always have inflation always have low interest rates because these are the things that help the u.s government with their debt right like the inflation and low interest rates so you can see inflation got a little too high interest interest rates have gone up like that's a real burden actually on the the finances, uh, like the day-to-day working finances of the U.S. government, um, because they can't service the debt if if interest rates go too high, and that's the only tool the Federal Reserve has to tamp down the inflation. So you can see they're in a tight bind, one way or the other. Um, but yeah, if 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 you think, okay, well, inflation is really good for people in debt, well, that like you said, that's the U.S. government, and and they're also kind of in charge of having it happen. So it's. Do you think it's fair to say that maybe a, a common um, uh, misunderstanding on the left, I know that this was definitely my misunderstanding um, when I was in college, and I, looking back, I could see that among my classmates, is that, um, okay, we have all these problems in the world, and we have this tool, which is government funding, and we need to deploy that tool to address these problems uh, and yet now with uh, with uh, kind of a bitcoin perspective i tend to think that uh even though that is that is good and in many cases appropriate if it involves printing the money out of thin air it's uh creating this environment which on the whole uh, worsens the situation to a greater degree than what any uh program can uh can fix yeah, I, th- I think that it's it's an interesting point of view to say that some of the very well-intentioned programs, the government programs that have been in place to like help people have also caused second order negative effects, right? There's unintended consequences. Yeah, so like the, in my mind, there's a classic example to say, well, we want everybody to be able to go to college. College is like the gateway to your economic freedom and having a good life. So we want to make that accessible to everybody. So we're going to provide very cheap, very like almost free loans for people with very low interest rates through the government to pay for their college. 
that's very well-intentioned and good. And, and I think that all of that's right to that point. And then you take a look at like college tuition. What has happened since the 1970s? It's become totally inflated and, and out of the price range of most regular people to be able to afford it. Just sort of, I'm going to just pay this without any, taking out any loans or anything like that. Um, and it's hard to see in the moment that your solution which is making college more affordable for people is throwing more money to fewer goods called like this college degree and making the price go up. And so there's like, we're flooding the college market with money. It's no wonder that the price of college has gone up out of the reach of everybody. And certainly there's banks who are providing those student loans and sort of, you know, writing those off that it benefits them. The universities are having more money come in. Um, but like the value of the college education is slowly eroding, right? The credentialing is becoming less and less important. It's still important now, but it's becoming less important. Um, and, and so to your point, like sometimes there's these negative effects that you have, even with well-intentioned programs. So I think that through a Bitcoin lens for me, I say that, well, the government does have an important role within our society, uh, to protect vulnerable people, to enforce, uh, our rule of law to protect the country, um, to actually lift people up when there's they're in a situation where society has disadvantaged them. But we can uphold those progressive values and those ideals um, by the government spending money that it is transparent and accountable to the citizenry. They tax the people. They say we're going to tax you. This is what we're taxing you for. This is a this is a priority for us. And you know you voted for us, and this is what we're going to do. As opposed to the politicians just saying, "All right, we're going to say yes to everything. We're going to fund everything. We're going to do it by printing money." The taxing, you know, we're going to tax you, but really the money's not. Most of the money's not coming from that. It's from this other thing. So the people in the government who are making those decisions. Um, are using the money printer to to distance themselves from the voter. They don't need to say you get the good thing and there's no bad thing, right? Like, you know, if you actually have to pay for everything through taxes, then there is a give and take. There is a negotiation. There is a balance, a conversation to be had. If you just say yes to everything because you could print the money, like that's damaging to society on the ground level. Um, and also doesn't really hold the politicians accountable to the people that put them in office in the first place. So I think that um, there's a lot of really important progressive ideals and um, principles that I think that the government should stand up for and protect people and and give people opportunities, but do that through taxes and not through debasing the, the money supply. I think that it's possible. And the more people that are learning about this and talking about it, the better. Yeah, you make uh, that point really well in the book talking about uh, the forever wars that we see mm -hmm. now and how those are essentially enabled by the government's ability to print money and uh, separate the effects of the, 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 the cost of that war from the average citizen, whereas if it had to be financed entirely through taxes, then uh, it would be a lot harder for, for uh, governments to continue to wage those wars on and on yeah i mean it, it, how how can a how can an unpopular war last 20 years and cost trillions of dollars right like it it cannot happen if the money isn't coming from someplace else right and so there's plenty of people plenty of companies making money off of this war or you know pick 
pick and choose which war you want to talk about, but there's plenty of money to be made, but it's not coming from taxes because if it were, then the war wouldn't be going on anymore, right? Like it would have ended a long time ago. Um, and I think that, you know, I, like you said, I talk about this in the book and that's just one example of, you know, the disconnect between the politicians and the people they're, they're meant to represent. In terms of the future role of Bitcoin, do you see it as uh, something for uh, individual people to kind of have an uh, an exit option from the system, or kind of like a like a safety, almost like a go bag, like you would have in an emergency? Like people hold a little bit of Bitcoin, so if the if the system, like if their dollars hyperinflate or if the system collapses in some way, at least they have this this um, bit of wealth. Um, or do you see it as something that will uh, separate um, money and state in the way that church and state were separated? Eventually, we have mm-hmm. money which is not issued by government, and it's something that uh, is independent of it. Yeah, I I can envision both versions of that future, right? I think that um, certainly already now today people are holding bitcoin as their escape valve as their get out of dodge bag right like this is what i'm going to grab when you know things go crazy i'm going to this i have this it's going to help me get to you know from where i am to where i need to be that's happening all over the world right now as we speak i think that people who are in sort of affluent western democracies and and don't necessarily need it for that purpose right now view it more of a speculative investment. Maybe it will just get me more dollars in the future. Certainly that's a lot of the people who own Bitcoin, at least America and Europeans especially, is like, okay, I'm going to invest in this because I'll make more money later. But I do think that Bitcoin represents an opportunity to change the financial system. And I think that could happen because people actually can hold and access and secure privately their own Bitcoin. And if that's what's used as a normal, as a as like the world reserve currency or as the new normal, um, then you have a check on the government. You say, you can't take this from me. You have to use the same money as me. I'm a regular person and there's there's a whole bunch of us. So I think that provides a check for governments not to abuse um, either the fiat financial system that they have, or if they do transition to a Bitcoin standard, then you end up having you know a check from normal people who just you know run a node, have a hardware wallet, and and their Bitcoin can't be touched. So you can't, and and the governments can't print more of it. So I think that the answer is both. And I think that there's a future in which Bitcoin one way or the other provides a check on the power of government. Maybe it does separate money from state. I don't think that's, I don't think that's a bad outcome necessarily. I think that's probably has a lot of potential, just like the separation of church and state did a lot of good for the world um, and sort of limited a lot of the bias and uh, bigotry that we had and a lot of limitations on um, disadvantaged people. I think that Bitcoin can provide that same opportunity for us in a financial system, a financial way. Um, and who knows, right? Like we're, we're very early. It's hard to predict the future. So I will, I, I know I'll just hold and make sure that I have what I need um, and try to get as many people onto the lifeboat as I can. Your book is a really optimistic one. And honestly, it's um, Bitcoin is like the thing that kind of made me optimistic about the world again, because going through college and studying all these uh, global problems and uh, 
and the efforts that have been made to solve them and then seeing that in so many cases it's just gotten worse mm. um it's really easy to despair and i think we do see a lot of people kind of giving up and um i know for me it was easy to like once i started working just uh focus on career and think, well, I can't really do anything about global problems. So I'll just right. try to make as much money as possible and like at least put myself in a in a position to deal with them. And, and Bitcoin is kind of the thing that made me rethink, actually, maybe there is a way to um, address these structural problems. Um, yeah. So your book is, is really optimistic, but I'm curious how how worried are you about uh, about the future, especially if we see some kind of major transition? Um, I recently heard this quote, I think it's Voltaire, um, who said, uh, well, I'll paraphrase, but uh, it's dangerous to be right when powerful men are wrong. Uh, and we're talking about... <laughs> I like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about Bitcoin being a check on government power, but uh, I mean, mm. the government doesn't want to be checked. Right. Um, how... Yeah, how concerned are you about about the future? So I will, I, I'll just say I agree with with your initial assessment, which is that Bitcoin does provide an op like an, a vision for the future that we want to see, right? More optimistic, more of these problems are being solved because we're able to look at them through a different lens, right? We can work towards a world that has more equity and more opportunity for people, more fairness in our financial system. Like, so I am generally speaking, optimistic about the potential Bitcoin has to to make the world a better place. The the concern the concern comes a couple of different directions. One is like are people ready for that message? Are people ready to invest the time and energy and the the effort it takes to learn about Bitcoin and learn about the legacy financial system? And the other thing that worries me is um you know, ultimately, you hear a lot in the Bitcoin space. Well, it's inevitable; it will happen. Like you can't stop it. Like you know, and and some aspects of that are true. But I do think that to envision a world in which Bitcoin actually makes the world a better place, and we have a legacy financial system that gets replaced with something more fair, more transparent, more just, takes work. It takes people on the front lines, like protecting the code, writing new apps, using, you know, improving user interface, growing adoption, um, educating people about the fundamental, like important concepts that are within Bitcoin and making sure that new people who are coming in can can get on board with the, the idea of personal responsibility and freedom and understanding what Bitcoin is and what it isn't. So I am optimistic, but it doesn't, um, doesn't happen for free. Yeah, a lot of people think that Bitcoin, like Bitcoin exists, the world gets better. And I view it more as a step zero, like Bitcoin has to exist, but it's not sufficient. Like we need to do more work. And so that's always been sort of my message. And so I'm optimistic, but cautiously so, because uh, people need to get on board and, and put in the work to to actually see the world that they want to see. Yeah, I realize um, I uh, in some of my questions, I, I referred to the government as kind of a monolithic entity. But uh, <laughs> yeah. but one thing that I think progressives um, or, or just politically engaged people in general, I think the thing that they get right and maybe the libertarians kind of get wrong is that it's not, at least in a democracy, it's not as if the government is this thing that is separate from the people. Like the people are the government. And, and sure, there are perverse incentives that in many cases 
uh, people go in with good intentions and then they can't accomplish those or they get um, they become compromised. But um, yeah, I, I'm guessing you you would think that one one of the keys to making it a peaceful transition rather than a violent transition is is getting people into office who have the right idea about about Bitcoin. Yeah, and and I think that specific to like the transition, I think uh, the slower and more gradual we can transition to like something that's like a Bitcoin standard, the better. I think it would be if we were to have to transition suddenly, or if the transition did happen suddenly, that it would be catastrophic to a lot of people, um, especially people who are already in the fiat system sort of disadvantaged. So my hope is not like uh, tomorrow morning we wake up and Bitcoin's $2 million a piece and everybody's using it. It's, it's more like, let's get the people that need it on board. And I think that includes educating politicians and uh, regulators and legislatures about the benefits and um, you know, what role does the government have, you know, at any level um, and any jurisdiction about sort of protecting people um, or like harnessing the power of Bitcoin uh, to, for it to do good instead of sort of stifling it um, because it, it goes against their self-interest or something like that. So we do need to get politicians on board, but we need to get people all around the world on board um, and and hopefully get a transition to a new system that is more gradual than sudden, just because I think that would minimize the suffering. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know people are cheering uh, the ETF right now, for instance, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I would, I want as many people as possible to have a chance to get some Bitcoin for themselves at a, at a cheap price. But, but also I think like you say, the, the transition, I mean, kind of the slower, the better. Yeah. It's, it goes against you know, like your innate desire to see the price go up, <laughs> but like, I, yeah, I get it. People say like, I'd rather Bitcoin stay at this price for a while because then I know people in Africa and, um, you know, in Asia or, you know, other developing countries uh, who are really suffering or who need a better system. We want to get those people on board too. you know, um, Think about people who's who are living in countries whose monetary system is just flat out broken and, and doesn't provide stability um, and economic opportunity for people. Uh, Bitcoin provides a, a path forward for for them too. It's not just sort of the ETF, like oh, I can get it in my four hundred one k now, and the price is going to moon and everything's well with the world. Like that's just going to create sort of the a new version of the same system we have almost. So I just want to see it as spread out, get more people on board, increase adoption in that way. That, that would be my hope anyway. One thing, and this could easily be a, another huge topic, so I, I feel bad bringing it up, kind of towards the end. But uh, one thing that gives me hope, because I I think it is easy to um, in any revolution or or drastic transition, um, it's easy to say, well, isn't isn't this just going to replace or isn't this just going to replicate the current system? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, like maybe it'll be different, different people in charge, but uh, it's still going to be the same unfair system. And I guess the thing that gives me hope about a Bitcoin system is that it doesn't it I don't think it's going to solve inequality. Like I think people who have money now, even if they're late, even if we transition to a Bitcoin system, even if we're late, they're going to be able to buy uh, um, probably more Bitcoin than than you or I could have accumulated over 
over right. decades. Um, so it's not going to make the world unequal, but I think it is going to remove some of these self-reinforcing effects of the system. Yeah. Where in the current system, it's not just that it's unfair, it's that it's self-reinforcingly unequal and it, it trends towards greater inequality. Whereas in your book, I think you make a great point that that the system trends towards greater distribution and and uh, potentially equality as well. Yeah, and and that's a that's a fair point, right? If you have um, a lot of U.S. dollars and you're well connected and you're established, then you have um, a closer access to like newly printed money, right? You're going to benefit um, from that money printing in ways that that normal people can't. Um, and that's just not tr- that's not possible with Bitcoin. No matter how much Bitcoin you have, you don't get to have control over the protocol. You don't get to have uh, a say in how new coins are minted or whatever, who gets them. So um, it's a drastically different system that allows, um, like you say, trending towards more distribution, more equity, more equality. Um, and the current system is is just the opposite. It's not just in like the inequality is self-reinforcing, as you say. So I, I am optimistic in, for, for all of those reasons too, um, you know, in particular, because I can't afford like 100,000 Bitcoin, right? So it's good that anyone who can, can't change the system to benefit them, right? And that's, that's why, you know, we feel so optimistic about it. Yeah. Well, you've been super generous with your time, so I don't want to keep you too long. But I did uh, promise to ask about... Uh your experience teaching kids and oh. what uh, what that uh, kind of um, indicates or what what that makes you think about the future generation. So I'm curious, do they do they get Bitcoin quicker because they're digitally native or do they kind of just jump to other crypto and think like, oh, Bitcoin, it, it, it doesn't it's not going to do 100x anymore. So it's boring. Yeah. Um, some of the kids certainly start off with like the, how do I get rich quick, right? As measured in US dollars. Um, but I think that the digitally native piece for the kids is not a function of like, oh, they understand like the concepts of Bitcoin. I think it makes them more open to like money existing on your phone and I can send it to somebody else's phone, right? Like I think that they're okay with that. Um, it doesn't mean that they understand what a blockchain is or how it works um, and that's fine, but they're willing to learn. Um, it's surprising. A lot of older people think, oh, well, teenagers know Bitcoin and they don't. <laughs> they they know it just the way that everybody else does, right? Like, oh, it's internet money. I don't get it. It's not from the government, that kind of stuff, right? So they have all the same questions and the same learning that has to happen. They're just a little bit more open to it because they never had a checkbook and they never, you know, had to deal with like, you know, uh, you know, paper money, really. Like they're, they're really in this digital age. So, um, I'm optimistic because that's the future. And I think that Bitcoin fits into a world where people are going to feel comfortable using it, especially as we get new apps, new user interfaces going on. So I'm optimistic in that way. And I think that the the students that I talk to, once I get them past the like, oh, should I buy it because I'm going to get rich and like actually start talking about the ways in which the current system is really unfair and that Bitcoin provides an, an opportunity to get a new system that is more transparent, more fair, more equitable. Um, they, they, I think they latch on to that. Not all of them, but plenty of them do. And I feel like that's an op- a reason for optimism too. In terms of political engagement, I know one 
one big uh, issue in Japan is um, people are not politically engaged. And I mm -hmm. think especially young people, um, life is good enough that they figure, well, things are just going to kind of continue as they have and politics doesn't mm -hmm. really matter. Um, I think it's the classic boiling frog situation, even though I heard that's not actually true that a frog would just jump out of the water <laughs> at, at a certain point but but it is a, a really useful analogy um sure and it kind of feels that way in japan where the youth uh, are not engaged don't really see a reason to be engaged and and things are getting worse like wages are stagnant and prices are going up mm -hmm. but it feels at least until this past year it's felt slow enough that that doesn't really cause people to question the system but uh right. is that is that similar with uh american youth or are they a little more engaged i think in my experience with my students who you know are all ninth to twelfth graders um you know most of them are politically engaged they follow on with the news they have strong opinions uh one way or the other about who should be in power and what they should be doing um and certainly there are uh there's a cohort of kids who only care about whatever was on the football game last night or something like that. Right. Or, you know, hang out with their friends, but certainly I do see a lot of political engagement um, in my community uh, among young people who, who ultimately all of them want the same thing, which is to make a better world for themselves as they grow older. Right. But they have different uh, visions of what that better world is. And then they, they engage. So I think that, from where I sit, I'm optimistic about the political engagement of young people. Certainly it's not everybody, but there are people who have really strongly held opinions and do a lot of effort and put a lot of effort into learning as much as they can about issues. Um, and I think that that's, um, that's all good as long as it remains respectful and productive and you can have a dialogue. And I think, um, you know, maybe the big hope is that people who are teenagers now and coming up have, um, lost the appetite just for fighting uh like <laughs> people my age uh, certainly still have um and maybe they'll just figure stuff out and solve problems but who knows <laughs> we'll have to see yeah sure hope so yeah um so has the school year started are you back to teaching now so um our school year starts in in september and this year uh this academic year i'm actually on sabbatical so i'm going to be promoting oh, okay. the book and traveling around so i have a year off which started last month, um, you know, in September, and uh, it will go through June. So yeah, I'm I'm currently off doing book stuff, uh, which has been amazing. Um, but yeah, the, my, all of my students and all of my coworkers are back to work for sure, and I'm here talking mm -hmm. to you about Bitcoin. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, I know you spoke at Bitcoin Amsterdam, which. Uh, mm -hmm which must have been amazing. Do you have any other uh, travel coming up related to speaking or? or yeah, thanks. Um, I, you know, I just got back really from LA for Pacific Bitcoin and then right to Bitcoin oh, yeah. Amsterdam. So it was uh, quite a bit of travel, but I do have some uh, smaller things coming up um, in the winter. At some point I'll be in Philadelphia. I'll have local kinds of things uh, close to me in Connecticut. So not a ton of big travel necessarily coming up, but a couple of like, you know, I'll be going to meetups and I'll be having conversations with people. So I'll be around. Um, and, uh, you know, 
really the after I got back from Amsterdam, I was very happy to be, have my feet on the ground and be back with my family. So definitely for the next uh, little while, at least I'm going to be prioritizing that uh, along with the, the Bitcoin journey to prioritizing the family. So for sure. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're having a few more Bitcoin conferences in Asia these days. Um, and we have a, a Noster conference coming up. Noster Asia it starts oh, tomorrow. I heard about so, that. Good. Yeah, that yeah. sounds awesome. <laughs> um, and good luck. Be, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm not I'm not against traveling anywhere. Uh, as long as the calendar and the budget uh, provides for it, then I will I'll be there to talk about the book and about Bitcoin. So, uh, maybe, yeah. yeah, I'm not ruling anything out. Yeah, hopefully we can uh, get you over here sometime. Um, the book is uh, a progressives case for Bitcoin. I really recommend that everyone uh, pick it up and read it and share it with your friends. Um, anywhere else you'd like to send people, Jason? No, uh, the, my website is uh, bitcoinprogressive.com. You can get more information about the book there um, and follow me on, on Twitter. There's links uh, uh, on the website too and, and learn more about the book and learn more about me there. So thank you. Appreciate the time. Yeah, Jason, no, thank you so much for your time. Okay, what'd you think of that? I think I jumped around too much, but the book does an amazing job of methodically building out a case for why Bitcoin isn't bad for the environment like many people believe, how understanding the current money system helps explain problems like inequality and autocracy that we just can't seem to shake, how inflation is an insidious actor that undermines even our best intentions to help the neediest, and how Bitcoin can transform this system in a way that distributes power to the downtrodden. It's money for people, so the worst thing we could do is let it become yet another partisan talking point that people dismiss out of hand, out of allegiance to tribe. As always, follow the show if you don't want to miss an episode, and if you'd like to help me out, a rating or review or sharing this episode with a friend would really go a long way. In any case, let me know what you thought. Thank you so much for listening, and talk to you again soon. GM Radio.